Good morning again. When I was a little kid, we would church hop a lot, like from about age zero to five or six. We never stayed in one church for more than, I don't know, six months at the most. And that's its own story. But the point for today is that we did not have any one person that we said, this is our pastor. And so the, peop- the person that my parents both would have actually said was their pastor was a preacher who was on TV. And we sent money every month to this guy's ministry. And maybe some of you will have grown up or, or, or watch or know the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And the most popular, I think, of the sort of health and wealth and healing guys in the 90s was Benny Hinn. Anybody remember Benny Hinn? Sure. So if you don't know Benny Hinn, he was a real character. He was, I think he's still around, but he was Israeli-American, so he sort of had this accent. I can't really do the accent, but he would talk like this, and he was always very well-dressed. He'd have a designer suit on and Versace shoes, and he had this I don't know if it was the toupee or if the hair was like the real miracle that he was doing. But uh, he was this character and he'd do these big healing conferences or gatherings where there'd be hundreds or thousands of people and they'd all be cheering. And Benny Head would come out and he'd take off his coat and he'd wave it around and he'd say, I feel the raw spirit and now it is upon you. Take it, take it. And people would get knocked over. And then he had his, I don't know, like these burly union-looking guys that would go through the crowd and pick out people who needed to be healed. And they would bring them up onto the stage, and Benny Hinn would hit them with his jacket and say, the Spirit heals you! Or he'd press their forehead. I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of service or been a part of this kind of thing. And usually, he'd say, be healed. And then the person would get knocked down. And, they'd, and then the, the two burly union guys would like pick the person back up. And then Benny Hinn would say, be healed. And they'd be knocked back down. Which to me always kind of felt like, I don't know, going to a restaurant and the chef comes out and says, be full, and then punches you in the stomach. <laughs> but we would watch this and we would tithe to Benny Hinn Ministries every month. And eventually he came through our our side of the country, and my brother, my older brother Frank, had this, this cleft palate issue, and also some emotional problems. He was adopted, and he'd had a rough past, and so my dad said, you know, Frank needs healing, and so he brought Frank to Benny Hen's conference, and they stood in a big, I don't know, auditorium or whatever, surrounded by screaming people, Benny Hen, ah, the raw power of the Spirit, and they waited for the, the handlers, whatever, the people that choose the people to be healed, to choose Frank. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And when my dad got home that night, you know, my mom would have asked, you know, did Benny Hen bring Frank up? Did the Spirit inspire him to heal Frank this night? And of course, my dad did not have an answer. And I think they stopped tithing to Benny Hen's ministry somewhere around there, maybe not immediately. But my mom was cured of, I don't know if anyone else was cured of anything at that conference, but my mom was cured of any further interest in those kinds of preachers, the prosperity preachers, the health and wealth people, the healers. 
And it's not that I don't think God can do miracles. That's not what we're talking about today. But we all are familiar with this type of preacher, right? We're all familiar with the health and wealth people. With Jake likes to talk about Joel Osteen. He's got the teeth. His orthodontist has been blessed, very much blessed and made very prosperous through his ministry, if no one else. Um, Joel Osteen, Benny Hen, people like this. And I think a lot of us feel pretty cynical about these kinds of people. I mean, we live in a, a cynical age where we feel cynical about a lot of things, actually, about institutional authority and about politicians and about, you know, if someone gets up and says, I've got something to give you and it's great and it's the blessings of the Lord and it's prosperity and it's healing. Our first instinct isn't, yay! For a lot of us, our first in instinct is, eh, sounds like you have something that you have what you want to sell me. And if it sounds too good to be true, then that's probably because it is too good to be true. So when someone promises us the blessings of the Lord, we can feel icky about that. But then you think about verses like, well, lots of verses in the Bible. I, I pulled a couple. Proverbs 28, 25. But he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Psalm 1, 3, talking about the man who um, meditates on the law of the Lord. It says, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And then whatever he does, he prospers. And you think about all the verses that talk about God's goodness and the blessings that he does have for his children. I mean, they're there. And you have to kind of think, like, what do we do with that? What kind of expectation of God's blessing are we supposed to have as Christians? And, and what do we do to strive for God's blessings? Or do we strive for God's blessings? Maybe we just say, well, God can bless me if he wants, but we'll see whether that's part of his sovereign plan. Or maybe we work as hard as we can to have this or that kind of blessing. Maybe we only strive for spiritual blessings and we don't strive for material blessings. I don't know. I want us to consider that today as we talk about a man who expected, it was foretold from before he was born, that he would have great blessings from God. And then he did everything in his power to grab, to strive for as many of God's blessings as he could get his hand on. He was like, I am not going to rest unless I am, until I am as blessed as I possibly can be. And as we do that, I want to think about God's, I want us to think about, as, as we talk about this man, I want us to think about God's blessing and what we should do in terms of expecting it, in terms of striving for it. We're talking about Jacob today. We're in our Faith of the Fathers series. We talked about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac. And now we get to talk about Isaac's son, Jacob. What, what do you know? Like when I say Jacob, what comes to mind? Jacob's ladder, yes. Jacob and Esau. What's that? Stew, yes. What's that? Birthright, yes. Jacob, good guy, bad guy. 
What kind of a man was he? What's deceitful? Depends on what part of his life we're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So does anyone know what the name Jacob means in, in Hebrew? Heel catcher, yeah, basically. When Jacob was born, as we'll read about, he was holding on to his older brother's heel. They were twins, and so he's called the word for heel. Which doesn't mean like, ah, he's a heel, like that kind of thing. It means to follow or to be behind, to be on someone's heel, which can be a figure of speech for supplanting, for overreaching, for cutting in line, for taking something that shouldn't be yours. You know, you grabbed them by the heel because they were going to make it across the finishing line, but you wanted to make it across the finishing line. Now, Jacob, at a certain point, will be renamed by God. And, and what is his new name? Israel. And what does Israel mean in Hebrew? Anybody know? So it's made up of two words. One is the word for God, and one is the word for strives, struggles. What's that? Yeah, so you can kind of spin it one of two ways. You can spin it God struggles or God strives, like God strives on our behalf, that sort of connotation. Or you could spin it he who struggles with God. And what else do we know about Jacob? Did he ever struggle with God? Right, there's a pretty famous thing. So all that is table setting. Let's talk about Jacob. I want to talk about his life first. I'm going to have to fly the airplane very quickly again over his life because there's so much we could talk about. He's, he's, he's an interesting guy. His life extends all the way through the story of Joseph. He ends up going to Egypt. He gets embalmed. Like He gets mummified. Uh, I mean, after he's dead. He gets, he gets the Egyptian embalming treatment because his son is like the second in command of Pharaoh. There's, there's like a lot we could talk about that's just interesting from Jacob's life. We could do a whole sermon series just on the patriarchs, just on Jacob. But let's just go quickly through and let's draw some lessons and let's think especially again about God's blessings and how we strive for those or whether we strive for those. So the story of Jacob begins with Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of the promise. He's got a wife named Rebecca. And let me just go ahead and read Genesis 25, uh, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So from the very beginning, before he's even out of the womb, there's this struggle. Jacob is someone who struggles. He's struggling with his brother, with Esau. And God declares that he will be the victor. That's already all set up before the guy even came out of his mom. All right, uh, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, 
Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Now, I don't want you to think jock versus nerd here exactly, because they didn't have nerds back then. Uh, Jacob would have, I mean, there's, there's later, you know, he's going to move like a stone, and uh, he, he's obviously a capable dude, you know, but his, his brother Esau, a very capable dude. His brother Esau, big burly hunter, Arnold Schwarzenegger type. So when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he, he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we need to talk about what a birthright is. There's a lot of talk about birthright and blessing and stuff like this in this story. A birthright has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with who gets the most stuff, who gets the inheritance. It has to do with who leads the clan, like who's the next patriarch of this tribe. But for these individuals, it has a greater spiritual significance because God promised a spiritual inheritance to Abraham. God promised he would make a great nation out of Abraham, and he promised blessings on Abraham and on his descendants, and he promised, ultimately, Jesus through the line of Abraham. And so the birthright is to be the person through whom all that goes. And people tend to notice two things about this story, two obvious things. Number one, Esau despises his birthright. Esau goes for instant gratification. You know, you've probably heard this story maybe in Sunday school, and it's like one of the lessons that is drawn from it. And a good lesson is keep your eyes on the prize. Don't just go for the easy thing. Don't be, oh, I'm hungry. You know, and then he sold away something much more valuable than a bowl of, of all things, lentil stew. The first thing that people notice is Esau despises his birthright. That's right there in the passage. It's, it is what the writer of the passage wants us to notice. He, he puts that as the punchline of the pa passage, so totally legit thing to notice. Another legit thing to notice, Jacob talks his brother into a bad deal. Jacob does something that feels questionable at best, bad at worst. Jacob has already been promised by God. His mother was given this oracle or whatever it was saying he's going to basically get the birthright. He's going to rule his brother. And yet, he takes advantage of his brother in a way that's not good. Now that, I don't want to give short shrift to either one of those two things. They're both true. We'll talk more about them. But the thing that maybe we don't notice quite as much that we should notice about this is how much, yes, Esau despises the birthright, but Jacob values 
the birthright. Jacob is a man who wants to get what is best, who wants the blessings of God, who sees these things as important. He is not given to instant gratification. He is given to what is actually best. He has an eye for what is valuable. And so Esau has this this wonderful thing, and he just triggers it away for a bowl of lentil stew. Jacob understands exactly how important it is to have that, and so he takes it. You see these stories all the time, right? I just saw a story about a, uh, a woman in New Hampshire who goes to Goodwill or a thrift shop. She needs a frame for her pictures, so she buys some crummy painting for $4, and then she po- happens to post a picture of it on Facebook. An art expert happens to see it. He contacts her. Hey, that's actually an early American masterpiece, and it's worth $250,000, right? We love those stories. You see a story like that every year, or you see the terrible reverse where somebody had something valuable and they didn't realize it. Um, But we especially like the stories where someone has something valuable right under their nose and they don't know it. That's a really cool story. It's cool to think that you might just have some random piece of junk at your house that might actually be a treasure. It's also cool to think of yourself like one of the experts, like, like, what if I was the kind of person that could just look at a room full of seeming junk and pick out what was the treasure? Wouldn't that be cool? It is a cool thing to have something valuable, and it is a cool thing to perceive value, even where others do not perceive value. And so the first lesson that I want us to take from Jacob is see value where there's real value. See God's blessing where God's blessing is. Are there places in your life where you have things that are valuable and you don't actually think of them as valuable? You don't treat them as valuable. I don't know what that could, you know, it could be your kids, relationships, reading your Bible, a gym membership. I don't care. You could have something in your life that actually represents real value to you and you just don't act that way. You're, you're Esauing instead of Jacobing. What is in your life that has value right under your nose that, that you need to actually treat it like it has value? You need to cultivate it like it has value. That's one lesson from Jacob. But let's move on with the story. We've got to go fast here. So God had already favored Jacob and Jacob had already done something to kind of nudge fate along. He'd gotten this birthright from his brother. But now the time comes for Isaac, Isaac actually doesn't die anywhere near this moment, which is something that's kind of interesting. But Isaac thinks he's going to die, thinks it's about time for him to bless Esau. Isaac is going to give the big blessing, the, the culmination of the birthright, of the, the promise. And he's going to give it to Esau. It's interesting that Jacob... God said before Jacob was even born that this goes to Jacob. And then Jacob also bartered with his brother and got it. But Isaac, for whatever reason, we don't know, isn't on board with that. He likes Esau better. We know that much. And so he's going to give the blessing to Esau. Most of us know this story, right? This is the famous Isaac is like, hey, Esau, go out, hunt 
get some game, make me some of my favorite stew, bring it back, I will eat some, and then I will give you the big blessing. Rebecca, the mom, overhears this and is like, "Uh uh-oh, Jacob, you need to dress up like your brother because your dad can't see that well. He's getting up in years and his eyes are going a little dim. So you're going to pretend to be Esau. You're going to like make your arms hairy like Esau's arms by putting some some goat fur or something on them. And you're going to go in there. We're going to kill an animal real fast, make some stew. You're going to get in there. You're going to get that blessing. And so Jacob does exactly that. Isaac's like, ah, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. And he gives the blessing to Jacob. And here's the blessing. Genesis 27, 28 to 29. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. That's a pretty cool blessing. That's a blessing that you want. Like anyone who comes against you, God's going to be against them. Anyone who is for you, God's going to be for them. It's kind of like one of those stories you read about, you know, three guys find a magic lamp, and the first guy, ah, I'd like a million dollars. And the second guy, I'd like a beautiful lady. And the third guy, I'd like the power of persuasion. And then the first guy fritters away his million dollars. And the second guy gets a divorce from the beautiful lady. And then the third guy is very persuasive. So he gets a billion dollars and he's dating supermodels. Everything goes his way because he had foresight and asked not for the thing that's immediately gratifying, but just, hey, can the universe bend to my will all the time? That'd be cool. That's the blessing that Jacob gets. Blessing he gets is basically the universe is going to bend to your will all the time. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So that's it. Jacob got it all. He got the birthright. He got the blessing. God foretold that his brother would serve him. God foretold that he would supplant. God ordained this. Esau, not super thrilled about any of this. Ah, I took my birthright. Now he's taking my blessing. I think I should kill that guy. So Jacob flees. Jacob goes to Laban, the brother of Rebekah, his uncle, and falls in with him. You have the famous story of Leah and Rachel. You got the two daughters of Laban. You got the older one, who's not that pretty. And you have the younger one, that's very pretty. And... Bible, I mean, I'm not being a jerk. The Bible just says that, like, pretty much in that language. You have Leah, Rachel. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. He's like, hey, Laban, can I marry your daughter? He's like, sure, if you, if you, if you work seven years for me. He works seven years. They do the wedding ceremony. He wakes up the next day, and it says something like, behold, it was Leah. And so he's married to the wrong woman, and he's like, hey, Laban, what gives? I wanted to marry the younger, prettier one. And Laban's like, ah, sorry, buddy. We always marry the older daughter first. And he's like, okay. And Laban's like, well, you can work another seven years if you want, and you can have Rachel. And Jacob's like, okay. And he ends up working 14 years for Laban. At the end of that 14 years, he's got two wives. Those two wives have 
the children that will eventually become the heads of the tribes of Israel, your, your Dans and your Issachars and your Rubens and stuff like that, uh, Jacob gets to the end of that. He's still not wealthy. He's been working for Laban, but he's going to continue to work for Laban. And they cut this deal where Jacob will get the spotted and speckled lambs and goats in the flocks. Immediately after they cut that deal, Laban, constantly a deceptive dude, a real trickster, a real supplanter, removes all the spotted and speckled lambs from the flock, gives them to his kids. Jacob's left with nothing, but God blesses Jacob. And Jacob does a little magic or voodoo or something or science or I don't know what regarding poplar sticks. You can read all about it. Really interesting story. And he ends up, the blessing comes true. Laban tries to curse him. It does not go well for Laban. He is blessed. He becomes prosperous. Jacob prospers. And Laban realizes, like, the only reason anything is going good for me is because I've got this guy who everything always goes well for working for me. But I keep messing this guy over. Jacob accumulates so much wealth off of Laban that there's bad feelings between the two. And Jacob flees in the middle of the night with his wives, with all the stuff that he's accumulated. Laban wakes up. Where's Jacob? He's gone. He goes after Jacob. Things are looking bad for Jacob. Laban has a dream where God says, hey, when you catch up with Jacob, don't say anything to him, either good or bad. And Laban takes it seriously. He's like, okay, I have to let this guy go. God has his blessings on this guy. And so, yay, Jacob's made it. Except there's one other person that he has bad blood with, and that is his brother Esau. And he has traveled back into that part of the country, and his brother Esau is coming to meet him. And Jacob's like, oh, shoot, I'm going to die. This is really bad. And so he sends on a big present, like a bunch of the stuff that he's accumulated, to Esau. And we have the, famous, the, the last big famous story of Jacob, which is where he sends on his wife and his kids. He's going to meet Esau the next day. He's really scared. He spends the night praying. He's in the dark by himself. And then Genesis 32, verses 24 to 30. <clears throat> and Jacob was le left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob wrestles with God. And we do not have time to talk about whether this was an actual incarnation of God, or like an angel, a representative of God. But either way, Jacob wrestled with God. You know what I'm saying? So we'll come back to this. This is obviously one of the key stories from Jacob's life, and we, I want to draw some lessons from it. But let's just finish up the story. So Jacob meets his brother. It's a real movie scene. Jacob like 
falls to his knees like, ah, bro, hey, I'm sorry, did you get my gift? And Esau's like, bro, these are your kids? This is great, let's take a selfie. And that's basically it. They make a covenant. Esau is favorably disposed by the Lord. And I'm not exaggerating. I was lying about the selfie part, but, but it really is, bro, these are your kids. Like, this is your wife, these are your kids. It's like, it's, it's that flavor. And so everything's good. Jacob's made it. All of God's promises of blessings have come true. And that's basically the story of Jacob. We have a lot more that happens with Joseph, his son, with the famine, with him losing his son Joseph, with him eventually Joseph rising up in Egypt and him going to Egypt and dying there and getting embalmed, which I always think is fun. But let's be done with the story of Jacob and let's draw some lessons from it. So there's, th- there's three things I think we should take away from the story of Jacob today. Number one, God blesses who he chooses to bless. Number two, we should strive for God's blessings. And number three, God tests us. God sends us trials, but he helps us pass those trials, overcome those tests. So, so first, God blesses whom he chooses to bless. It's just true. God puts his blessing on people, and those who try to hinder his divine plan, whatever they do just ends up being used to bless that person more. God chooses to bless the ones that he loves. We see this pattern over and over and over and over and over in the scripture and over and over and over in the story of Jacob. So the answer to the question that I asked at the beginning, can we expect blessings from God? Yes. Yes, absolutely. If you are in Jesus, then God has greatly blessed you. We are, all of us, inheritors of the birthright of Abraham. We are in this lineage. We are, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. We have the blessing. The ultimate blessing was Jesus, and we have it. Yeah, right arm, left arm. Thank you, Joneses. Um, We have real blessings. Despite Jacob's sin, despite his sometimes grasping for the blessings in ways that he shouldn't have, God blessed him. God blessed him anyway. And that should comfort us as we undergo the trials of life, as we look to God to live our lives. Now, last week, Ben taught us that it's not about us, it's about God. And none of what I'm saying is in contradiction to that at all. I wouldn't disagree with that, and Ben wouldn't disagree with what I'm about to say, which is God glorifies himself by pouring out his blessings on us. God actually binds his glory to us such that when we prosper, he is glorified. Now, does that mean that Joel Osteen has any business promising you material wealth or Benny Hen has any business saying you definitely always will be healed if you just say the right prayer or believe in the Spirit in the right way? No. The the prosperity gospel is false 
because it treats God like a jukebox. The prosperity gospel actually doesn't love God that much. It just sort of thinks, well, if we do the right things, if we say the right things, really good stuff will happen for us. But the answer to that isn't a distant, cold, unloving God. The answer to God is not a jukebox is, no, God is a father. God is a father. He chose us. He loves us. Can we expect unlimited health and wealth? No, but God promises to provide for us. He promises us to give us everything we need for life and godliness. He, he promises to prosper those who meditate on his word. He promises to give us spiritual blessings and joy in Christ. And, and the fact that people abuse this kind of language to sell you things should not make us throw the baby out with the bathwater. We must cling to the blessings of God. We must operate from a deep understanding of God's love, a, a cheerful expectation of God's blessing. And if you've been hurt by your mom or by your dad or by past trauma, abuse, bad situations, it's really hard to believe that God is actually in your corner. You think that God is like that person. I myself in my life, I'm always shocked by how untrue that is. God is actually really generous in a deep spiritual way, but also just in giving me things that I want, things that I need. Shortly after Meredith and I were married, I was like, uh, I'm a little bit older than Meredith. I wasn't, I was pretty overweight at the time. I was like, we sh I should get some life insurance. And because I didn't have any life insurance. And so I, I, I got a quote on like policy genius. And it was like, yeah, we'll give you life insurance for, for an arm and a leg. And I was like, well, that's not really very good life insurance. Then I won't have an arm and a leg. Um, so I'm going to spend the next year trying to lose weight. And then I'll apply for life insurance. So I spent the year, next year trying to lose weight. And at the end of the year, I was Moby Dick and it was bad. And I mean, I, I weighed more. And I was angry at God about this. I was like, God, I really tried to lose weight, but my metabolism is really slow. It's obviously that that's the problem. Um, and I really want to care for my wife. I want to care. I think we were pregnant with Theo. I want to care for my kid, but I can't do it. And, and why won't you give this to me? Don't you want to give me good things, God? Or do you just want me to learn valuable lessons through suffering? I mean, that's an ugly thing to say, but I think that's about what I would have said. Maybe I wasn't that direct, but maybe I was. So anyway, we call an insurance place and we're like, hey, can you give us a quote? And the guy's like, yeah, here's a quote. It's a pretty good quote. It's actually much better than whatever you managed to get yourself on Policy Genius. And you're like, you realize I'm Moby Dick, I said. And he said, yes, but uh, uh, it's still fine. In fact, I don't even think you need a physical. I'm just going to send it to underwriting. And I was like, okay. Maybe God does want to bless me and give me what I, what I need. But then he called back the next day and said, so underwriting wants you to get a physical. I was like, okay, fine. And then I remember it was like the dead of winter and there was heaps of snow and this woman like struggled out in her old like broken down uh, pickup truck or something to do the physical. I don't know what happened, but I, I weighed like 20 extra pounds that day. I mean, really, like it was just, I was, it was as bad as it had ever been. And I was just feeling unwell. And I was just like, there's no way they don't double the price and, and get it out of what we can afford right now. We don't hear anything for like four weeks. And I'm just like, okay, I guess, I guess this isn't happening. But we decided to call the insurance agent and ask them. And uh, he, we call him and he's like, oh, 
oh yeah, uh, yeah, I forgot, I had some news. Um, it's actually different from what I quoted from you, to you. It's a lot lower. And we were like, why is it so low? Well, and he's like, well, you got that physical and you're a regular preferred non-smoker and uh, Meredith is a super regular preferred. And so we're going to give you the best deal of all time. And we were like, okay, thanks. And he was like, yeah, sometimes underwriting does us a favor. And it was a real lesson in God's goodness for me. I hope if that same situation happened again, and insofar as it has, I'd be able to trust God a little bit more because he does things like that for me all the time, actually, where he's just generous, where he just gives me more than what I need, where he's just kind, and somehow I can still be faithless and not expected of him, even though he's really quite a generous father. He's really good. I've messed things up. I'm sure you've messed things up by doing the thing that Jacob does when he's at his worst, by like, you already have the promises of God. You already know he's going to take care of you, provide for you, give you what you need, but you don't trust him to do it. And so you do something stupid or sinful, you know? You don't trust God that he will ever give you a family or a spouse or anyone to love, that you're just going to be alone. And so you sleep with the wrong person or you marry someone who's not a Christian. I mean, that's a dynamic as an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, you, you try and control your teenagers with guilt and manipulation because you don't trust that God is actually working in their hearts and that he actually will work in their hearts. You're greedy in your business or your, or your work dealings because you don't trust God to provide for you. You know, we're, we're all tempted to do those kinds of things. I'm not trying to single anyone out. Those are just the examples that I thought of. I mean, if you're, if you're worried, like, it, sometimes it's hard to tell, right? I want this thing or I'm going to do this thing. And I don't know if it's from faith or from just me trying to grasp for, for something, from, from not faith. I think, ask yourself, am I willing to sin to get what I want? Am I going to sin if I don't have it? You know, am I willing to sin to get companionship, to take that example? Will I sin if I don't have it? Well, okay, that might be an idol and you might not be operating by faith. But big picture, my point is, God has made, if you are in Jesus, God has made many promises and we need to trust them. We need to trust that God is for us, that he's working things out for our good, that he wants good things for us. So that's lesson number one. God blesses who he blesses. And if you are in Jesus, that's you. Lesson number two, we should strive for the blessings. Now, now maybe some of you are, are more theologically minded or just more depressed. And so, not that the two always, always go together, but uh, maybe you're, you're like, well, what if God hasn't chosen me? What if I'm not one of God's chosen ones? Then I guess the blessings aren't for me. Well, the answer to that question is really easy. Then accept Jesus into your heart and the blessings will be for you. Like we could sit here and talk all day about the sovereignty of God, but the fact is none of us are living on an island where we haven't heard about Jesus. We all have a choice. Everyone in this room, if you don't have Jesus, you can have him. Talk to me. Talk to Ben, talk to Jake, talk to anybody. We'd love to pray with you and help you. Now, there's another question that kind of goes with that, though. What if God hasn't chosen to bless me? What if it's not the time for God to bless me? 
even though I know I'm in him. In terms of the blessings that God has for your marriage, for your relationships, for your sanctification, for your work, for provision, for your heart, your job is not really to wonder whether God wants to bless you. Your job is to be like Jacob and strive for those blessings. Jacob was like the terminator of blessings. He never stopped coming for the blessings. He was going to be blessed. Esau disdained his birthright. Jacob was like, yes, I'll take that. Laban stood in his way, deceived him. Jacob's like, no. He literally wrestled God for blessings, and he did not stop until he won. And it is not impious for us to do the same. We need to love and honor and fear God. But we also need to be like, I am a son of God. I am promised certain things, and I will not rest until I have every ounce of my birthright. I will have a good marriage. I will provide for my children. I will get over my daddy issues, my mommy issues. I will fight my lusts. I will not give myself to alcohol or easy living. I want every part of what God has for me. I don't want to miss anything. So I am the Terminator. That's an old reference, but you know the Terminator? He, he's, he's sent to kill Sarah Connor, and she shoots him, and she blows him up, and his legs get ripped off, and his skin melts off, and he's just an exoskeleton without legs, and he's still crawling to get her. He will not stop. That is what we need to be as Christians. We may not give up. Jacob didn't give up. We need to keep re-upping, keep coming back, use every trick in the book. Jacob used some tricks that he shouldn't have used. I do not want to condone sin at all, but I almost want to say it would be better to err in that direction than the other one, the direction of passivity, of laziness, of I don't know what God has for me. Again, don't sin, but have a cheerful expectation of God's blessing and strive for the blessings with diligence, with faith. Keep working. Don't be like, well, my marriage is kind of crummy and I'm just okay with that. No, keep working on it. God will give us different levels. I mean, God, God is sovereign. He will give us different things. Not everybody's going to all get the same amount. But we should never stop working. Now, what about trials? What about temptations? What about suffering? What about the bad things in life? What about bad things happen to good people? Am I, am I denying any of those things? Am I denying that God uses them in our lives, that he disciplines us? No. Jacob wrestled with God. Do you wrestle with God? Let me ask you this. Has God ever appeared as your adversary? Have you ever said, God is my opponent right now? I hope you haven't. You probably haven't if you're a good Christian. But there's a way in which we could say that it's true, right? If you have past abuse, if you have sickness, if you have fears about the future, if you had a bad mom or dad, if you have enemies at work, sexual hang-ups, sins and temptations that you're given to, addictions, mental health issues, relatives who hate God, if bad things happen, if people die, 
If people don't do the things that you want them to do, if your kids don't turn out the way you want them to do, God is in control of all of that. And so he is in some sense your adversary. He is in some sense saying, I, well, he is in every sense saying, I am giving you a test right now. I am giving you a trial. God does give us tests and trials. The scripture talks about it and uses those words. He doesn't tempt us like Satan tempts us, but he allows us to be tempted. We are called to seek real blessings for our lives, but there are times where it will feel like God is in opposition to us. And how do we deal with that? Well, Jacob wrestled with God until he won. But here's the million-dollar question. Who helped Jacob win? God. God gave Jacob the victory. There's a sense in which you could say, I know it sounds weird, but God gave Jacob the victory over God. There's a great theologian who said, you know, it's almost like God opposed Jacob with one hand and then helped him with the other, as if God was wrestling with himself. Remember that next time your life has turned to darkness, next time things aren't going your way, next time you feel a trial or adversity coming on. God may appear as our adversary, but then he rises up to help us overcome. God tests us, but then God helps us pass the test. God hides himself, but then God helps us find him. And that is the lesson of Jacob's limp. The limp is like, well, actually, you can't beat me. Like, I'm, I'm God, okay? Like, you're weak. You can't do this by your own strength. Like, I, I could have won any time. So be humble. Don't rely on your own strength. But you can stand against your greatest adversaries because you have me, because you have God. God does send suffering, but God is the one who gives us the strength to meet it. And sometimes that, like the limp that Jacob walked around with for the rest of his life, sometimes that suffering leaves a scar. And those scars are precious. Every scar, be it spiritual, mental, or emotional, is a memorial that says God was here. Not because he's a cruel God who inflicts suffering, but because he's a kind God who saves us when we suffer. Jacob served a God who chose him, who blessed him. Jacob believed in those blessings and worked with all his heart to claim them. And when God tested Jacob, God gave him the strength to pass that test. We serve the God of Jacob too. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you that you do bless your children. Thank you that you do help us, that you do, though, though trials come, you help us to overcome. Thank you that you do provide for us so generously and that we can rely on that and work towards that. Thank you that you do give us new hearts. Thank you that you do heal relationships. Thank you that you do provide for your children. Thank you for all your mercies. I pray that every heart here would be encouraged and strengthened in them. In Jesus' name, amen.